That song, um, you know, it's pretty simple, but it talks about the one thing that we're all going to have to go through. We're going to have to go through the flames in this life. We're going to, uh, we're going to have to suffer all kinds of trials and pain. And that's what the writer of Hebrews gets to here in Hebrews chapter 12. So turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Now the author transitions us from that great faith chapter where all those men and women of faith that lived for God no matter the circumstance that they found them in. Now he transitions us then to the challenge for us to live out our faith no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. And so that's, that's where we come to here in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's look at the first three verses together. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So he begins here by focusing really on three key points. The first one is to throw off anything that hinders you and keeps you from, from living for God. Secondly, then, he says, let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us, and then let us fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. I want to focus in on that idea of running the race that's marked out for us. Because uh, in the New Testament, you'll discover that racing and competition are very prevalent uh, ideas and analogies that the writers use to talk about our faith. And so you have to assume that probably the Olympics were, were well known back then in that first century and, and that was a prevalent part of life. The athletes were training for those Olympics. And so racing and competition were a prevalent part of it. But what happens in the New Testament is that they relate racing to life. And they say that life is a race. And we're all partaking in this race called life. And the ultimate goal of the race is to become like Christ. And so Christianity is all about becoming like Christ. That's the goal. That's the finish line. But you know, life is a long distance race, not a short sprint. But most people are running through life as if it's a short sprint. And people have a tendency to live life for the moment rather than live life for the long haul. And you see this even amongst uh, Christians. You see Christians living their life for Christ, but then they take a break. They live for life, life for Christ, and then they take a break. It's much like a sprinter. You ever seen a sprinter uh, uh, train? Sprinters train by sprinting and then walking. And then they sprint and then they walk. And that, that's much how people want to live their faith in this life. And so people live for the moment. They don't live for the long haul. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. And in Hebrews uh, verse 1 of chapter 12, he says, Let us throw off those things that hinder us, the sin that keeps us from living for God, that entangles us, and let us run the race that is marked out for us. And so life is a marathon. It's a long-distance run. And you know, that's a very difficult com uh, concept for me to understand. I mean, look at me. Do I look like a long-distance runner, really? <laughs> And so it's a hard concept to think about life as a marathon. 
But that's really what it is. You never really achieve the goal of life until the very end. And so I know that some people are starting out life and they're just kind of starting out the race. And it's, they're young, they're excited, and things are going well for them. And then there's others of us who are kind of approaching those, uh, that middle stage in the race. And then some of us are coming to those final laps in the race. But wherever you are in this race, the one thing the, writers of Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says is that we must persevere. We must develop an attitude of perseverance. Otherwise, you're going to have real struggles in this life. And so you have to persevere. This word persevere, the Greek word is hupomone. And it's a fascinating word because it doesn't mean just, just sitting there in your chair and taking it all in and just kind of bearing the load. It means you're fighting for it. And so it's the per perseverance is that concept of, of fighting for something, trying to master whatever it is. And so you're fighting your way through life. You're fighting through the storm. You're fighting through that struggle. And so that's what it's conveying. And so in the New Testament, it conveys this, this characteristic of a person who is not swayed from their purpose. And so they're living out their pursuit of faith in this life, and they will not be swayed by anything else. That's the idea of this perseverance. And so we throw off those things that hinder us and those things that keep us from persevering in this life and from living for God. Now, it's important that you remember that everyone has a race to run. And it's very individual for people. And so those, everyone has a race marked out for them. In other words, we all have our individual lives to live. And so many of us are living life in different, uh, along different paths, along a different route, but we all have the same finish line. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. is whatever your particular uh, path, whatever your particular race that's marked out for you, fix your eyes on Jesus throughout the entire race. You see, Jesus is really, it's this picture of Jesus standing at the finish line. And he's standing there and he's cheering for you. He's going, come on, you can make it, come on. And he's cheering for you, come on, don't give up. Persevere, come on, fight through the pain and get here to the finish line. It's that picture that Jesus has for us. And then not only is Jesus standing there, but this great cloud of witnesses, the great cloud of people who have lived their faith, they're standing there with Jesus. And there's this crowd cheering for us. And they're saying, come on, you can make it. Come on, don't give up. The line's right here. Come on, you can make it. So you have this great cloud of witnesses pursuing you and cheering for you and cheering you on in this life. And they serve as this inspiration for you. And it's much like an athlete where the athletes have these, these former great athletes in mind as they train and they perform. And they, they look to them as an inspiration. And so we are to look to these men and women of faith as our inspiration, ultimately with Jesus standing there at the finish line. That's the picture the writer of Hebrews is presenting to us. And the ultimate goal, then, is to become like Christ. I'd like to uh, read from William Barclay's commentary. He said, in the Christian life, we have a goal. The Christian life, the Christian is not a tourist who returns each night to the place from which he starts. He is a pilgrim who is forever on the way. And the goal is nothing less than the likeness of Christ. It would be well if... At the end of 
each day's ending, we were to ask ourselves, am I any farther on? Am I any farther on? You see, we should take moments in our lives to assess where we're at in the race. We should assess our lives. Where are we? Are we allowing the pressures of this life to hinder us and hinder our walk with Jesus? Are they preventing us from pursuing Him? Are you so entangled with sin that you cannot focus your eyes on Jesus Christ? What's holding you back from the goal in this life? And so the author builds on this analogy of racing and of persevering because he knows that the pressures will come to us. That we will all eventually need the inspiration of those who live by faith. That we will need to focus our attention and our eyes on Jesus Christ. That we will need to persevere because hardships are coming to each one of us. That's the next transition that he makes in verse 4. Look at that, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 12. He says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as, a, as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you, are not, if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respect them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Endure hardship as discipline. You see, everyone is going to have to endure hardship in life. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you will have to face hardship in life. Hardships come to all of us. The only real difference is the perspective that you take into that hardship. And this is where the author is coming. He's not defining for us the theological reason for suffering. He's simply saying that we should choose to look at the sufferings and trials in our life as discipline. It's another way of viewing the sufferings and trials of life as a discipline in our life. Because disciplines make us stronger. And so the way we choose to interpret our experiences is up to us. It's our choice. But the interpretation that you bring to those experiences will determine how you respond to those hardships. It's much like uh, Nietzsche, the uh, secular, non-religious philosopher, 
he did say a few things that were worthwhile. And he said this, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And that's a very true statement. If you endure through those hardships, you will come out the other side stronger. But that's dependent on your perspective. But your perspective doesn't change the reality of your pain, does it? It's still going to hurt. It's still going to be hard and difficult to go through. But it will change how we respond to it. And so you have these, these choices to make. Is it, are you going to view these hardships as discipline or as punishment? Now discipline is always focused on the future. It's focused ahead. It's focused forward. And discipline, through discipline you can always see the benefit on the other side. It's much like the uh, athlete or the weightlifter, you know. The weightlifter endures the pain of those weights in order to become stronger. And so discipline always looks forward to the future. Whereas punishment looks back. Punishment always looks back at, at what has happened in the past. It's much like raising children. If you focus on the defeat, on the, on the thing that the child's done, you're not going to progress them in life. But if you focus on helping them become better for the future, that's discipline. And so discipline looks forward, punishment looks back. And there are several ways that people look at discipline. Some people see discipline as an unjust punishment. And so they get bitter and they remain resentful and angry toward God. And they even get to that point where they say they no longer believe in God. But I can tell you, you cannot remain angry with God and also not believe in Him. Other people see discipline with much self-pity, with a woe-is-me attitude. They say, I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? But the reality is there's nothing that you will go through that many, many other people have not also experienced. Discipline does not mean that God hates you. It does not mean that you are suffering these trials and enduring these hardships because there's some divine retribution coming down upon you from God. That's not what it means. You see, we have to change our perspective about suffering and trials. Because you see, there's another way that you can look at discipline in your life. Another way that you can look at the sufferings and the enduring of hardship. And that is as an opportunity for growth. An opportunity for you to grow, given to you by a loving Father who loves you deeply and wants what's best for you. And so discipline reminds us of the love of the Father. And people that have no discipline have no, life, no love. People that have no discipline have no love. And so if a parent does not discipline, they do not love. It sounds harsh. But if a parent does not love their children, they do not discipline them. And our culture today doesn't understand discipline. We don't understand the difference between, between punishment and abuse and discipline. And I can tell you that Sue Bradford's anti-smacking bill will not stop abuse in this country. Because abuse is not discipline. Abuse comes out of, out of selfishness and hatreds, hatred towards another person. Discipline comes out of love and wanting the best for another. 
And so a lot of people look at discipline as something that's very negative. But discipline is always positive. It always seeks the best outcome. And so discipline is always positive. And discipline helps us focus on what really matters in life, on the really important things in life. And discipline always strengthens us. Just like that athlete who who disciplines their body to provide them strength for the race. Now one of my favorite passages of Scripture of all time is James chapter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where James writes and he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that... um, I almost had that. (laughs) Because you know that the testing of your faith develops uh, perseverance. And then he goes on to explain, perseverance develops character and strength in you. And that's what I've always considered with that passage. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face those testings in your life, that that you endure those hardships, and that you persevere, and that you focus on Jesus Christ, and in the end you will be stronger because of it. You will be stronger because of it. Look at Romans chapter 8. I wish we had time to go through Romans chapter 8 this morning, because the Apostle Paul presents a powerful argument for persevering and how we should consider suffering and where we should focus. I don't have time to really get in depth with it, but I wanted to highlight a few of those verses. Verse 18 of chapter 8 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy, com- worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It says, The creation waits in eager, in- eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now there's a lot of theological stuff in that. But my perspective is that we are also part of that creation. And we are subjected to that same frustration in life. But that frustration comes so that we may grow through that and persevere and so that we might become the children of God and have that glorious freedom in Him. Look at verse 26. He says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit of God is in us when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in order to help us through those times of trial. When we are weak, He is strong. Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We, consider, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's powerful. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall the trials and sufferings of this life, shall the persecution or famine or nakedness or danger separate us from that? No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who gives us strength. We are more than conquerors when we persevere through the suffering and trials of life. Paul goes on to say in chapter 12, verse 12, he says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Joyful in hope, patient in affliction, joy and faithful in prayer. You see, the choice is ours. We can look at our suffering as an unjust punishment that comes into our life and that we don't deserve it and we can get angry and we can get bitter towards others, we can get bitter towards God. Or we can look at the sufferings that come into our life as a form of discipline, knowing that once we persevere through it, we will be stronger for it. Joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. You see, our perspective will not change our circumstance. But our perspective will help us persevere through those trials. I want to read one last quote from Warren Wiersbe. It says, Our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, the trials will make us bitter, not better. Now I realize that all this stuff I've talked about is much easier said than done. I know that many of you have had to face tremendous trials in your life, whether it's in the past. Maybe some of you are going through those tremendous trials right now. And I know it's always easier to talk about these things in the theoretical than to have to live them out on a day-to-day -day basis. So I've asked my wife, Mickey, to come share an experience from our life. And we share this just as a way to, to help you. It's just our experience. It's not meant to, to replace the pain and sorrow that any of you have ever gone through. But this is our experience, and I hope that it in some way helps you. Good morning. About three weeks ago, um, we remembered the anniversary of the worst day of my life. In order to help you understand the journey that God and I have been on, I need to take you back about 13 years. I found out I was expecting our first child. I was so excited. Found Mr. Wright, and now I was having a baby. All I've ever wanted to be as a mum. It was fantastic. The pregnancy was wonderful. Oh, we enjoyed listening to his heartbeat, watching the scans, watching him grow. It was just the best thing. At 37 weeks, I went in for a normal check and the doctor couldn't find his heartbeat. A scan confirmed my very worst nightmare. My baby had died. Checked into hospital that night been induced labour, and 36 hours later, Taylor Noel Brooks was born at rest. 
one of those moments that are filled with wonder and joy and yet horrible, horrible sadness. Because even in death, he was so beautiful. We held him. We cried for him. And two days later, we buried him. It's not supposed to be like this. Mothers aren't supposed to bury their sons. Everyone went back to life. Randy packed up the nursery for me. Everyone just kept on living. My friends avoided me because they weren't exactly sure what to do with me. So I was left to go through the stages of grief. When I hit anger, I became a not very nice person to be around. I was so mad. I took it out on my family. But the real culprit, I was so angry with God. What right did he have? I had done everything right in life. What right did he have to take my child from me? I was a good Christian girl. I've always been a good Christian girl. I come from generations of good, strong, faithful Christians. I'm third generation, full-time ministry. It's not that my family were nominal Christians, we're good, strong Christian people. I was that good, strong Christian girl. I started teaching Sunday school at 13 years old in the townships. I never rebelled as a teenager. I married the right kind of guy. <laughs> I was teaching Sunday school at the time. Randy and I had helped out with youth group. I was in the church choir. I was leading a Bible study. In fact, we already knew that we were coming to New Zealand to plant this church. I'd done nothing wrong. What right did God have to take my baby away? I'd done everything right. After about two weeks of this bitterness and anger, I finally broke. On the bedroom floor, my face in the carpet, I literally sobbed my heart dry. And I did some yelling. I yelled at God told him how seriously cheesed off I was. <laughs> and when I finally calmed, he gave me these thoughts. He said, Mickey, you need to choose. You can keep going the way you are. This is what the path looks like. It's dark. It's bitter. It's ugly. It made me shudder just to look at it. He said, or you can choose this path. At the beginning of this path, there's submission. But then, there's peace and there's love. No promises of babies to come. No promises of a pain-free life. Just God himself. I got to my knees. And I submitted to my father. I left the faith of my fathers that day. And I clung to Jesus for all I was worth. I could do nothing else. Because I knew that as bad as this hurt, I just simply couldn't do life without him. The peace that certainly does surpass all understanding 
surrounded me. I did ask God a favor that day too. I asked him if he could please make Taylor's death something. I didn't want it to be nothing. I didn't want it to just be an event in my history. I wanted it to count for something. And could he please do that for me in just some small way? God is so faithful. He has answered that prayer over and over so many times. I couldn't even tell you all of the times and all of the different ways. I just never dreamed. He is a creative God and he loves to answer. I've been able to minister to other women who have lost children. I've had the privilege of lecturing in Christian universities to young men and women going into ministry to help them deal with families who have had a loss. I have an amazing marriage. Most marriages don't survive the loss of a child. And I know that man will walk with me anyway. I do have three beautiful boys. And they have a true concept of heaven. They know that this world is not all there is. And that when they get to heaven, they have a brother waiting for them. And I can honestly tell you, with every ounce of my being, that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I don't know if God caused Taylor's death or if he simply allowed it. But I do know one thing. I wouldn't be who I am without it. Praise him. I'm sure it didn't happen to you, but Mickey made me cry. So. Um, you know, after 13 years, the, the pain does ease, and it's easier to talk about. But, uh, you know, as I sat there and, uh, sorry. I'll never forget sitting there with my father-in-law in the funeral home picking out the casket for my son. That's the thing that remains in my mind. We certainly had our questions as to why God had us go through that. But I can tell you that uh, Mickey and I are stronger because it drew us together. Because I think God knew the path that we would choose to be in ministry. You know, you don't have all the answers to those things. You don't know the ins and outs for all the suffering and trials. But I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Is that you will have to suffer pain and trials. You will have to endure hardship in this life. But the challenge is to persevere through those things with your eyes focused on Jesus Christ your eyes focused on him. I just want to read one more passage of scripture in Philippians chapter 4 verses uh, 11 through 13. The Apostle Paul says, I am not saying this because I am in need. 
For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Let's stand together this morning. Lord, I am grateful and thankful to you for being my God, for being our God, for giving us the strength to endure the hardships that come to life. Lord, I pray for each person here that they may be drawn closer to you because of this. Father, we don't have all the answers for why. We look forward to spending eternity with you where you can share those things with us. But Father, I pray that no matter what life throws our way, that we will stand up and live for you, that we will fight our way through the storms, that we will persevere. Father, I pray that, that you will use each one of us as we live by faith. Let us draw our strength from you as we go out away from this church into our daily lives where people see us living. Lord, may all of New Zealand know that these people live by faith, that they live for you more than anything else. Father, I thank you for the privilege of sharing these words, and I pray that you'll use them this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray.